You're about to listen to a message by Pastor Oge Ogwe, the lead pastor of Circle Church International. He envisions all men living Christ-centered lives. Be blessed as you listen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Shout glory. All right. High five three people around you. You in church. Whilst you're still standing. Whilst you're still standing, pick your Bibles with me. Open to Matthew chapter 1. We'll read verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, we'll read verse number 21. I know I have overcome the world. I know. Ah, yes. I know. Are you there? All right, everyone read Matthew 1, 21 together as loud as you can. One, two, go. And she shall bring forth a son... And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you because the entrance of your word gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. We thank you because in the beginning was the word and the word was of God and the word was God. And the same was his God in the beginning and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in darkness and darkness cannot comprehend it. We pray that Lord as your word is taught today to shine in the dark corners of our hearts and bring illumination in the name of Jesus. The word brought amongst us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we pray that as your word is taught today, that we will behold his glory as you would have us see him. We pray that as your word is taught today, that Jesus is glorified and we are edified. In Jesus' name we have prayed. All right, sit down. Let's get straight into God's word. All right. All right. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 21 says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save you and I. From our sins. I think it was John Piper. Or was it Charles Spurgeon. That said. That man contributes nothing. To his salvation. Except the sin that made it necessary. (laughs) Hallelujah. Jesus came to save us. From sin. So today I want to talk about sin. A little bit. Let us understand the doctrine of sin. Today's teaching is a precursor to a conversation on righteousness. I wanted to do a teaching on how the believer is the righteousness of God. But then I discovered that one fundamental error 
or one lapse in knowledge that we experience is many people don't understand what sin is. And so you don't understand what it means to be the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. I mean, fundamentally, we know sin to be the transgression of the law. We know sin to be if you disobey God's commandments, then you are in sin. But there is within the scriptures a deeper and more extensive meaning to sin that goes beyond, I lied, so I'm going to hell, or I stole, so I'm going to hell. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we're going to start by answering the question, how did sin come into this world? In case you haven't yet figured it out, this is going to be a teaching, teaching. So bring out your notes, your pens, and if I lose you, just try and catch up and then listen to the message later. I would have loved to take questions and, um, you know, if you have a question, but I don't think we can do that and finish the teaching. And I really like to finish the teaching today so we don't have to go over it again. James chapter 1 verse 14. James chapter 1 verse 14. We're going to read verse 14 to 15. James chapter 1 verse 14. Praise the Lord. It says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Everybody read James 1.14 together once ago. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lost, some translations say desire. Raise your hand if your translation says desire. All right, good. When desire has done its work, it bringeth forth sin. It bringeth forth death. And so the fundamental principle of sin is desire. Do you understand? What gives birth to sin is desire. You know, I was having a debate with some guy online. I find, I find people like that very funny because I don't know what it is about pastors here eh, that makes people think that we don't know anything. Like where, where we don't think properly. I have no idea why. Like once you just see pastor in front of somebody's name, uh -huh, somebody that does not think. Because he started asking me a line of questions. And then I'm trying to answer his line of questions. And his logic was pretty inconsistent. So I, I tried to explain to him that, my, my, my good boss, your logic is not consistent. You can't see this and jump to here. And his audacious response to me was, that's the problem with religion. It cancels logical reasoning. I'm like, bro, I'm the one that brought up logical reasoning. Like, you were jumping up and down. Like, you were flying from A to C to Q. Lay your thoughts properly. 
And so he started to ask me, who created sin? The question is wrong. <laughs> sin didn't need to be created. It's not a creation. Sin is a birth child. Do you understand? It is the end result of inordinate desires. Do you get it? It is the end result of inordinate desires. Where did sin come from? Inordinate desires. Desire in itself is not a bad thing. <laughs> Do you hear what I'm saying? Desire in itself is not a bad thing. Even when the desire is, a, is for what you shouldn't desire, it's not, that's not the problem. The problem is when we now align to the desire. When we cooperate with the desire, our cooperation with the desire will birth sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, um, let me say it in another way. Is it a sin to be tempted? Temptation is not a sin. It's when you fall for the temptation. That's what I'm saying. Desire is not a problem. You see somebody else's car, you desire the car, that's not the problem. The problem is now when you start thinking, how do I get this person's car? How do I collect this car from this person? And here you have entered covetousness now. It has become a sin. So sin didn't need to be created. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Let us explore two things. The fall of man and the fall of Satan. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 to 6. I want to be as simple as possible in today's teaching. But yet as deep and, and present as much of the truth as possible. That's a very difficult line to walk. All right. Genesis 3, 1 to 6. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the God, any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 2. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it. Neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. Now, why did God say to the woman that don't eat of this fruit, neither should you touch it? Because when you see the fruit, you want to eat of it. And you want to touch it. Do you get what I'm saying? There would be no need to give an instruction to not do something if you don't think that there's a propensity for the person to want to do the thing. Does it make sense? Uh -huh. So, God didn't have a problem with the woman desiring the fruit. Are you following what I'm saying? Uh, he says, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, target out, you shall not surely die. <laughs> Verse 5. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, everybody read verse 6 together, want to go. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also her own husband. And it was when the desire was full-blown, and she cooperated with it, that sin 
was blessed. I hope you know that the sin of Adam and Eve was not about the fruits they ate. Do you know? It doesn't matter what fruit it was. So what fruit was it that God said they shouldn't eat? We don't know. Amen. Amen. We have no idea, but there are some candidates. <laughs> I wish yam was a fruit. I genuinely wish yam was a fruit. I said is yam. <laughs> we don't know what fruit it was, and it doesn't matter. Do you understand? It could have been, some people have said it was a, hypoth um, a hypothetical fruit, that's that word. It wasn't really a fruit. It was, it was just, you know, a concept. Okay, maybe you are right. Some of us have said it's apple. I can't really believe it's apple because apples are nice, but okay. Maybe you are right. Some people say it's agbalumo. No problem. <laughs> it can be agbalumo because that if you eat it, it will slap you. It's like when you eat it, it's punishing you for it. <laughs> right? But it wasn't about the fruit. Are you following? It wasn't about the fruit. What was the sin of Adam and Eve in ordinate affection? Do you understand? Do you get it? Uh -huh. And I'll soon explain to you why that's a big deal. Let's look at somebody else's sin. The fall of Satan. We're going to have to read a lot of scripture now, so... Stay with me. Ezekiel chapter 28, we'll read 12 to 15. Ezekiel 28, we'll read 12 to 15. When I was in, when I was in Sunday school, when I, was in, when I was a kid, we used to have Bible study Sundays. I didn't like them one bit. Because somebody will just stand and just start yearning things and will be reading so many verses of scripture. But now that I'm older, I put away childish things. I know that there is a need to study the Bible. You see, the reason why we are teaching what we are teaching, the reason why I'm taking time to teach this, is because somebody has asked you before. Especially those of you that love God, you they carry Jesus on your head, up and down. You've met somebody who asked you who created Satan. She is God. You know, the guy asked me, I like it when they ask me that question because they always, they always ask it like a trump card. Like, you know, when you're playing game and then you know, say, just hold on. All right, here we go. Pick two, pick two, pick two. Suspension, suspension, suspension. General market, last card. That last card is who created the devil? <laughs> First of all, the reasoning is flawed. <laughs> because when you say who created the devil, you think, or the reason you're asking that question is because you believe that he was created evil. Now, could it be that he was created good and was corrupted by desire? So who created the devil? God, God did. He created everything. But the thing he created chose to be corrupted. And you'll see in a bit. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Now, there is a way Ezekiel writes his book. I really wish we have enough time. But if you read, um, hello, um, media boys, I know you want me to sound like God is speaking directly, but remove that echo from my voice. Thank you. If you read the book of Ezekiel, especially chapter 19, so please go back and do that study. 
There's something Ezekiel does a lot. When Ezekiel is talking about the kings of the earth, he would refer to them as princes or rulers. Princes. Especially if you're reading from the KJV, he would use the word princes. And then he would refer to God as king. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if you read Ezekiel 28, just a few verses before this, he told there was son of man take up a lamentation against the prince of Tyre or Tyros. Right? So referring to the king actually, the earthly human king, which means that Ezekiel calling someone the king of Tyros would make reference to a deity higher than the human king because that is Ezekiel's pattern of writing. Does that make sense? Does it make sense? Should I take it again? All right. If you read Ezekiel 19, for instance, there's something you notice in Ezekiel's pattern of writing. When Ezekiel is referring to the kings of this earth, human kings, he will call them prince. It's very akin to how the princes of this world know. He will call them princes instead of kings, their right designation. But if he was going to refer to a deity higher than the king, so a spirit being God, or in this case, the devil, he would refer to that being as the king. Does it make sense? So ideally, if Jerusalem had a king, he would refer to the king of Jerusalem as the prince of Jerusalem and refer to God as the king of Jerusalem. If that makes sense now. All right, good. So when you see him, if you read a few verses before this, media team, could you, could you do a search quickly and bring up Son of Matic up in Lamentation against the prince? I think that's verse 2. Please put up verse 2, Ezekiel 28, 2, so you can... Have a glimpse of what I'm saying. All right, son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus. Do you see it? The prince of Tyrus here is actually the king of Tyrus. So if he has spoken to the prince of Tyrus, and then he says, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyrus, then he's telling you something. There is a king who he sent a word to, but now he's speaking prophetically to a deity or a form of deity above Tyrus. Does it make sense? All right, take me back to verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum. I feel like you won't understand what you are reading. Can we get this in the HCSB? Or a newer translation? Just, all right. Son of man, um, lament for the king of Tyre and say unto him, This is what the Lord God says. You wear the seal of perfection. It says, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you. Carnelian, topaz, diamonds, burial, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountains and settings were crafted in gold. By the way, in the um, KJV, can you take this verse back to the KJV? I just want to show you guys something very quickly. Ezekiel 28, 13. So he says, The workmanship of thy tabrets and, and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Um, um, so that the workmanship of thy tabrets or tabret and pipes is, is the reason why a lot of people say Satan used to be a choir master in heaven because he had the instruments built into it. No, it was an old Jewish saying. Switch it back to the HCSB. <laughs> Read from the full stop. Your mountains and settings were crafted in gold. 
What it meant was that you were well made. Amen. Amen. Satan knows to sing anyway. They said, that's the reason why secular music is sweeter than gospel music. He used to be, have you not heard it before? He used to be the choir master in heaven. He knows the intricacies of music. If you are a musician, you will agree with me that secular music is the music. If you want to hear proper music, it's in gospel or jazz. Uh, so, so that's, anyway, that's by the way. Your mountains and settings were crafted in gold and they were prepared on the day you were created. Let me say something. One good way you would help your Bible study as a Christian hmm, is try and study with more than KJV. Help yourself. Do you hear what I'm saying? Just pick up a translation that is not the King James Version. The King James Version is a good Bible translation. It's excellent. The major problem is that you don't understand it. Because it's not written in a form of English that you speak. And I know that we think we understand the King James Version, but you truly don't. Till now, many people still don't know how to use thou, thine, uh, hast, ha. King James. So, it is, it is a good Bible translation, great Bible translation. The problem is you don't really understand the Bible translation. So, try the switch translation sometimes. Just when you are studying, in fact, make it so that your primary study Bible is a more contemporary translation like the ESV, HCSB, NIV, NLT. I wouldn't recommend that you use the message translation to study because in theology, it is what, what is called a paraphrase. So the, the readers read the Bible, then they didn't translate, they interpreted which means the interpretation can be wrong. Do you know the difference between a translation and interpretation? Should I explain? All right. If, um, if, um, let me see. What's the meaning of, am I revised, Paul? I'm still learning, but what's the meaning of HTC? What does it generally mean? Pay attention. Now, what is the translation of HTC? you get? There's a difference between translating and interpreting. When I said um, it means pay attention. That's the interpretation. On, do you understand what I'm saying? But if I'm going to translate it for someone else, I have to translate it directly. What it means. It means put your ears to the ground. Now, you are the one that will now do the work and say, are they telling me to literally carry my ear to the floor? Or are they telling me to, is it, is it a colloquial expression? Is it a saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? So just like that one we read now, the tabrays and pipes, is a saying. The real interpretation is that you were beautifully crafted. Does it make sense? Uh-huh. All right, let's continue. Your mountains and settings were crafted in gold. Please let me just take it again. Were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. Verse 14. You were the anointed cherub for had anointed, you were the anointed guardian cherub for had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God and you walked among the fiery stones. Obviously, this cannot be a human king he's talking to, right? Uh -huh. Verse 15. It says, from the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways 
until iniquity, the KJV says iniquity, sin, wickedness, was found in you. Now you ask yourself a question. If you are an intelligent Bible scholar, which day? We will discover in a bit. But let us look at another portion of scripture that validates this. Or what was the iniquity that was found in him? Isaiah records. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 to 14. Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. 12, Isaiah 14, 12, not 12, 4, please. 14, 12. All right, read together, everybody wants to go. Shining morning star, how have you fallen from the heavens? Hold on, let me say something. Shining morning star is the word Lucifer, by the way. All right, Lucifer was, I think, Aramaic for shining morning star. Now, one man woke up one day and was teaching that Jesus is the true Lucifer. Now, he is correct. Shining morning star is the word Lucifer. Okay? So that means, that means Jesus is the true shining morning star. Amen? In the, in the New Testament, there is a place where he is called the bright and morning star. If you, if you check the Hebrew there, that word there is Lucifer. So he is the true Lucifer. Like I have said before, it's not because you see a word used in one place and you see it used in another, you now conflate both of them. For instance, in Genesis chapter 3, Satan came to Eve looking like a what? Like a what? Okay. In, is it John 12? Jesus was speaking, was it John 12, where he said, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I will be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So now, I will now come up with one remark. First of all, let us go through the law of types and shadows. Moses lifted up a serpent. Jesus was that serpent. Hold on. But it was a serpent that came unto Eve. So Jesus was the one that tempted Eve. Can you see how my statement makes no sense? Can you see how it makes no sense? There must be logical reasoning in Bible study. That a word appears here and appears here does not mean it means the same thing in both places. Does it make sense? Please follow, um, answer me. Does it make sense? Uh, so... That he called him shining morning star here. And in the New Testament, they called Jesus shining morning star. Does not mean that it was Jesus they were referring to here. Amen. Amen. Uh-huh. Because in fact, the next phrase is, how have you fallen from... Amen. You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. Next verse. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. In the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So what was the iniquity that was found in Lucifer? Ezekiel 28, this is it. A sense of pride, a desire to be God. Are you getting what I'm saying? 
When did he play out this iniquity? Genesis chapter 3. Has God said you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said, Hoy. He said, is a lie. God knows that the day you eat of this tree, you will be like God's, knowing both good and evil. Eat of the tree. In suggesting an alternate instruction to what God had instructed Eve, Satan sought to set up an alternate government. Does it make sense? Does it make sense? So when was the fall of Satan? Hmm? When was the fall of Satan? When did Satan commit his own sin? <laughs> I like, I like, I like uh, sermons like this. <laughs> uh, let's take it again. We have established, first of all, we draw our doctrine from scripture. Is that correct? Uh, so, we're not going to say that uh, according to the Akashic records, somewhere, 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 there was a gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And that gap was when Satan fell like lightning. To, it doesn't make sense. Because it was Jesus that said, I beheld Satan fall. <laughs> when he was beholding Satan fall like lightning, it was when he sent out his disciples and they went out and they were casting out devils. So when he said, I beheld Satan fall like lightning, he wasn't saying that Satan literally fell from heaven to the earth. No, what he was saying is that I saw you undo the works of darkness. It makes sense, ba? Uh-huh. So there's no evidence that between Genesis 1 and Genesis, Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then the earth was without form and void. Some people will now say between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there is an entire civilization where the devil fell. You see, he fell like lightning when he landed, he scattered the earth. You can't prove it from scriptures. <laughs> Amen. Amen. What we do know from scriptures is one. God created everything to be good, including his angels. Amen. Two. Ah, let me go there. Two. Ezekiel and Isaiah established that he was blameless in all his ways until iniquity was found in him. Is that correct? Now, Isaiah established that this iniquity that was found in him was a desire to set up an alternate government to exalt himself in the holy mountains to be God. Is that correct? Now, where do we see those two things come together? Genesis chapter 3, where this, the devil came to Eve and said, Has God said? Does it make sense? You see, because in asking Eve, Has God said, but I say, He's saying, what God has said to you is one option out of the options that exist. I am the second option. I am an alternate government. If you don't worship God, you worship me. If you don't listen to God, you listen to me. Am I making sense? So what was the devil's sin? The sin that the devil committed was that he tried to exalt himself above God. How? By leading man astray. Amen. Amen. Does this make sense? It's straightforward, right? We're not doing any gymnastics. We're doing what the Bible says, right? 
Now, the next thing you will notice this, or another, a continuation, the way you prove this is, when did the Lord punish the devil for his sin? When? When he was punishing man. Which means the devil's sin was committed when man was committing his own. Why is the devil called the father of sinners? He is called the father of sinners because out of all of God's creations, he was the first one to follow his inordinate desire. And yes, angels have desire. I know that somewhere you've been taught that angels just, they are just standing, they are robots. When God says move, you say, go, let's go. When God says stand, they stand. They don't have any desire. But on many occasions, you find within scripture that this is not correct. In Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 and 2. Genesis 6, 1 and 2. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born unto them, verse 2. The sons of God, who are these sons of God? Angels, right? The sons of God saw, just like Eve saw, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful. The women were entering their eyes. That is called desire. <laughs> Amen. And they took any they chose as wives for themselves. So God punished them. In fact, Jude says the angels that kept not their first estate, he has bound in everlasting chains. So, angels do have desire. Amen. Amen. Another time in, in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel had just crossed out of Egypt and they were walking, they had just passed the Red Sea. And then the Bible said to Moses that I have sent an angel to guide you as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And this was God's instruction. He says, see that you do not anger him because he has my word. If you do any and you do anything to you, no be me do That's his disclaimer 101. Terms and conditions. He will say he will lead you as a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Please click agree. <laughs> Just know that when you are clicking agree, there are terms and conditions with him. If you annoy him and he does anything to you, my hand is not there. Open your Bible, read, you will see it. Another time. An angel appeared before Zechariah and said to Zechariah, Chief, hi, live forever. How's the family? You want to give birth. Your wife will give birth to a son. He will be a prophet. He will announce the coming of the Messiah. And Zechariah looked at himself. That, ah, I'm old now and my wife is old. How can these things be? We are both old people. It's not possible. And the angel got angry. He said, I'm Gabriel. I stand before God. I told you something. And you are doubting me because of that. You will be deaf and dumb until your son comes. You know he wasn't that made Zachariah deaf and dumb. He was the angel. He was angry. How dare you? I told you, instead of you to say, according be it unto me, according to your word. You are telling me, am I sure? <laughs> so, yes, they do have desires, contrary to what you've been told. <laughs> Amen. Ah, they have desires. <laughs> so, what was the fall of the devil? Inordinate desire. Inordinate affection. Sin is the birth child of inordinate desires. 
Does this make sense at least? You know, I, I have found that we like to complicate what is not complicated. The Bible clearly stated all of these things out. In fact, James did a whole teaching on it. It says, when desire has given, it has done its full work, it gives birth to sin. Where did sin come from? James, James answered, desire. <laughs> and when you read through the Old Testament, you find out that this is true. Especially when you are reading the, um, the writing of the origin of the world. You find out that this is exactly what happened. The devil first fell because of desire. Now, who, who sinned first? The devil. All right, the devil's sin was in telling Eve, has God said. Eve's sin was in desiring what God asked her not to desire. Are you following this? Uh -huh. So, the devil is the father of, of sin because he is the first that. Are you getting this now? His prototokos, the first begotten. But there's an interesting verse of scripture. I think it's in 1 John 3. 1 John 3, 4. We're covering good ground. I like it. 1 John 3, 4. Everybody read 1 John 3, 4 together. 1, 2, go. Whoever committeth sin transgresseth the law. For sin is the transgression of what law? What law? There is a way we have taught this verse of scripture to mean if you, it says sin is the transgression of the law. Transgression means to go against something. So if you go against the Ten Commandments, you have sinned and you are correct. But if we follow that train of thought to its logical conclusion, it means that sin did not exist before Moses gave the law. Correct. Is not. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, 6 to 7. Look to the screen. You know what? Let's read it together. Genesis 4, 6 to 7, 1 to go. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? That's why are you angry. <laughs> Next verse. He says, read together. And if thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, read the next line. Was Moses born at this time? Moses was not here. Ever. There was no Moses. So what was this sin? The transgression of what law? Does the question make sense? Does the question make sense? What was this sin? Which law did Cain transgress? Why do we think, why do we think Cain was a bad person? There was no law that said thou shalt not kill. <laughs> Have you ever thought about it before? There was no law that said do not kill. So why was it wrong for Cain to kill his brother? Also, second question, 
when Moses was on earth, he was an Israelite. Is that correct? And he was Jewish. Is that correct? Okay. Were there other nations on the earth? Were those nations, were there nations that did not have any affiliation with the Jewish people at all? Your forefathers existed at the time of Moses. Sure, you know. I hope you know. You know, there's a way we read the Bible as if when the Bible was being written, only those countries existed. It was not after, you know, as things were now going on, then Orumila <laughs> now created. <laughs> Your forefathers existed at the time of Moses. By what law were they judged? Moses' law. Does my question make sense? Or let me ask the question in a way that you are familiar now. You are familiar with. If a person dies without ever having heard of Jesus, by what law are they judged? You find something at work here. There is, or, or let me say it like this, there is a law a fundamental law of which Moses' law was a subset of. Does it make sense? There is an overarching law that Moses' law was a subset of. It's the reason why Jesus could say about Moses' law that this is the summary of Moses' law. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy strength and all thy might. And the second is like unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. So love is the law. No. You missed the point. Flew right over your head. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. We'll start reading from verse 18. You know what? Can we do... A study of Romans 1. Instead of starting from verse... Go to verse 1. I'm sorry this is not like teachings you are used to. But do you think you need this type of teaching? Uh -huh. So let's go to Romans 1. Paul is servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel. Next verse. Which he had promised our forefathers, prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Next verse. Concerning the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, concerning according to the flesh. Verse 4. Um, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Verse 5. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Verse 6. Among whom ye also the called this introduction to the letter. That's I'm, I'm speed reading through it. Verse 7. To all that's been in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Next verse. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Verse 10. Making requests if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gifts to the end that you may be established. Verse 12. Turns out that verse 18 might be where we should have started. That, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. Verse 18. 
Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I proposed to come to you, but was not hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you, also even as among other Gentiles. I think this is where Paul starts his conversation, verse 14. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. That word barbarians is not an insult. Amen. If you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile. Just like if you are not Nigerian, you are Oibo. Does it make sense? If you are not a Jew, you are a what? You are a what? Ah. If you are not Greek, you are barbarian. <laughs> it wasn't an insult. Amen. You know, there's a way in your mind you think that barbarian means caveman, ruffian, admiral. No, it just means non-Greek. So when he says both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, again, not an insult. The Greeks considered themselves to be the pillar and epitome of wisdom because they were the ones that gave us Socrates, uh, Aristotle, all those guys to say things that... Is, I believe that it's because they had light and they had internet. Because if you don't have all those things, you're not going to be thinking things you should not be thinking. But both to the wise and to the unwise, verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Let me ask you a question. If the Greeks were Greek, then the Romans were what? Barbarians, right? Barbarians, right? If the Greeks were wise, then the Romans were... Not that they did not have wisdom. They were just not the Greeks. Does it make sense? Uh, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, verse 18, apparently we should have started from verse 18. I apologize for wasting your time. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Please pay rapt attention. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth. In unrighteousness. Verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God had showed it to them. Which means these people had a way of knowing the truth, but they held it in unrighteousness. And you will, you will soon see what that means in a bit. Verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Let's not speed read through this verse. What is Paul saying with this verse? Paul is saying, and, and hold on, anyway. Paul is saying that even if Moses didn't come to you with a vision from a burning bush, and you didn't have an experience at Mount Horeb where God spoke and everywhere thundered and there was lightning and the mountain was set on fire and there was smoke and all of those things. Even if you never had any one of those experiences, he said the things that should be known about God are clearly seen from the creation. 
When you look at the trees, the sun, the stars, the moon, the water, the waves, the sea, oceans, when you look at all those things, the things that you should know about God are clearly explained. And what are those things? Clearly, he said, his eternal power and Godhead. Are you getting this? Uh, so that they are without an excuse. Who is this they? The Greeks and the barbarians. The wise and the unwise. The Romans. Those who would otherwise have an excuse for saying, Moses never came to us. Why does God judge us? Are you getting the question? Next verse, 21. Because... Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish hearts was darkened. Verse 22. They exchanged, okay, professing themselves to be wise. Hmm. Slow down. Remember who he's talking to? The Greeks or barbarians? The Greeks who call themselves. <laughs> Right? Now, he's saying, these people profess themselves to be wise, but they became fools. These Greek people, that after all they are thinking, all that should be known about God, his eternal power and his Godhead, they saw it in all of nature, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. Verse 23, how did they become fools? And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man. To birds and four-footed beasts and to creeping things. What was Paul talking about? You look at the nature, you look at the sun, the moon, the stars, you look at earth, you look at everything and decide that Zeus is the creator of all things. And that his symbol is a lightning, so you worship the lightning. Makes no sense. <laughs> you worship all these four-footed beasts. You worship images of birds. You worship images that you sculpted by yourself. So you sculpted the image, then put it and said that you are now my God. Paul says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Which means, please pay attention. There was, a, there was an expectation of God that transcended Moses' law. That even if you didn't hear Moses' law, God expected that from observing the things in nature, you could, even if you don't know him directly, you defer to him. Do you understand what I'm saying? You defer to him. There's a way you look at everything and decide, I cannot worship the ocean because somebody created it. So instead of worshiping the ocean and worshiping the sea and worshiping the river, I must worship the one who created the river. I don't know who he or she is, but, but to that person I would pay my, I would give my allegiance to. So, the fundamental law was a desire for God and a deference to him. It is that law that you find Moses' law inside of. Everything that is contained within Moses' law is a systematic way to achieve desire for God and deferring to him. Am I making sense? He says, and, the, and, and creeping things, verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up to the uncleanness through their lusts and desires of their own hearts to dishonor their bodies between themselves. So, note, okay, this teaching is a lot to unpack. What Moses is also, um, what Paul is teaching is this that, that that desire for God 
and that deference to God creates within you a, a, a way, a desire, a system of thinking, a desire that is different from this inordinate desire. That when our mindsets, when our minds do not seek the almighty creator and our minds do not defer to the almighty creator even if we don't know him to be jesus christ there is a way that that lack of accountability to a higher power will create within us and a system of inordinate affections and let me tell you how practical that is have you noticed that it seems like atheism is an excuse for immorality many times have you noticed it? I'm not saying that all atheists are immoral, no. But I'm saying that many times, especially in our society and our culture today, check it. You see somebody who used to claim to follow God. When they decide that they want to start behaving anyhow and living the life they want to live the way they want to live it, one of the first things they do is they say, I'm no longer following God. I'm now a free thinker. There is a, there is a way retaining God in your consciousness. Eh? orders your affection. Are you getting this? Uh, so that's what Paul is teaching here. God gave them over to their inordinate affections, their lustful desires. So he says, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, verse 25. Where, who changed the truth of God into a lie? This is the law. Who changed the truth of God into a lie? and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forevermore. So when you ask questions like, what of those who never hear of Jesus before they die? There are two, things, there are two answers I would give you. The first is make sure that those people don't exist around you. But then the second is this. There is a law by which they will be judged. The law is not, did you lie or steal or kill or cheat or bribe? The law is, First of all, what was your desire and deference to the creator like? Or did you exchange the worship of the creator for the created? Does that make sense? It was on this, it was based in this, or based on this, that God judged everybody in the Old Testament. Do you know that from the Old Testament... Nobody ever went to hell because they flouted Moses' law. I beg. <laughs> when you read the Old Testament, for instance, and you read David and the terrible things that David did, this same David now woke up and wrote that he's the apple of God's eye. Do you know David was not a good person? You know he wasn't a really nice person. I feel like, I feel like we, we um, confer sainthood on David because we, do, we didn't really read his story like that completely. David had wives. Then David had a harem of women that he locked up for his sexual pleasures. Because he was king and nobody could question him. Hey, king David, the one that they named you after. Uh, 
you know, we read of, hey, there's a way religion can polish some people. We read of David's mighty men. We will want them to pray us. 30 men that David raised. Until you actually sit down and dip the story and realize these were mercenaries for hire. That David went to Nabal <laughs> and asked for help. It's my team. I say, no, I'm not helping you. So David went back and carried his mighty men and was on his way back to Nabal's house to scatter everything and kill him. Because I said, no, I'm not helping you. My own team. Because you can beat me. <laughs> Is that not bullying? Then Nabal's wife, Abigail, heard that David was coming back to kill her. So she quickly carried all the things that David asked for and ran to meet him and gave them to him. So guess what the man now did? He collected the things she brought and the woman. <laughs> and married her. Yeah, David's wife, Abigail, was Nabal's former wife. Mm. <laughs> And he was not king yet at this time. So he was flouting Moses' law. <laughs> the apple of God's eye. <laughs> Am I saying that transgression against Moses' law is not sin? No. But I'm saying that transgression of Moses' law has never been the reason why people go to hell. What Moses' law was, especially the Ten Commandments, was a way to play out a more all-encompassing law. In, in apologetics, they will call it a moral law given by the moral lawgiver. It's God's own law. God, had, God has a law. Do you get what I'm saying? It's, it's the reason why even people who are not believers... There are some things that are too inordinate for them. Too inordinate. It's the same reason why God would send... I mean, think about it. Why did God pick up beef with all them Sodom and Gomorrah and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amalekites? I feel like one sure way... You, you can guarantee that your country will be a candidate for God's destruction is if it ends in ITE. The Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Amalekites, eh, Amorites, you know, Jambites, sorry. <laughs> What's your way you will guarantee? But why did God pick up a fight against these people? Because even if he didn't reveal himself to them like he did to the Jews, there was a level of inordinate affection, inordinate desire inside of them that was birthed by lack of deference to the almighty creator. See, there's a way you will value human life if you realize that you didn't give that life. Somebody created it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So hear me now, hear me very well. The Ten Commandments never took anybody to hell. I know it's a very difficult, it's a tough pill to swallow. But if they did, you think, you think you are safe? <laughs> you think you are forgiven because you need God forgive me, God forgive me, God forgive me. Are you a joke? 
In the Old Testament, when they sinned, they would, when David killed Kai, David. <laughs> David was, other kids, David said, no, I will send my boys to go and fight for me. His boys went to fight for him. I hope you know that, uh, was it Joab that he killed? No. Uriah. Uriah was one of his mighty men, though. They used to be tight. When David was sleeping inside caves and jumping from place to place, Uriah was one of his boys. He sent one of his boys to go and fight for him. Then that one's wife was beating outside. I don't know why you're buffing outside. But, but that one's wife was beating outside and he was, he was just looking at her. Then he sent his servants to go and call her. Slept with her. Gave her pregnancy. The, the, and this, this will tell you how long the battle was. It wasn't two days. It wasn't like Uriah went on Monday, two working days. Let's just go. He went 9 a.m., came back 5 p.m. Then the next day, went again and came back and everything. No. Most times, battles will last for days, months. So this guy is gone for months. At home, his king, king live forever, has impregnated his wife. And then the guy comes back and finds out that his wife is pregnant. And he's upset with the king. And he wants to see the king. And then the king says, don't let him come inside. Let him stay outside. And so for the number of days that he was trying to, he was sleeping outside on the floor. Because he was waiting to see the king. Then it was time for battle again. Send him back out. He went back out. Then the king gave instructions that please put him where the battle is the hottest. Then leave him. Leave him. Because if he's a normal, but Uriah was trained. He's one of David's mighty men. No, put him where it's not possible that anybody will survive. Leave him there and leave him, let him die. And he died. And so Nathan came and told David, see what you have done. And David didn't do, God forgive me, God forgive me, God forgive me. Like you do. And you think, I'm fine, I'm fine. I told God to forgive me, I'm fine. No. The Bible says that he didn't eat for days. He put on sackcloth. That means he replaced his normal cloth for bag of beans, bag of rice. That's what it is, sackcloth. He put on sackcloth, put ashes on his head and was in mourning for days. God forgive me, God forgive me, God forgive me. You need to understand how forgiveness of sins comes. It's not by saying God forgive me. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Right. Amen. Amen. Doesn't matter how many times you have said, God forgive me. If blood was not shed on your behalf, the sins are still there. God does not forgive because he asked for it. God forgave because blood was shed. And while David was putting on sackcloth and he was sacrificing animals, he was sacrificing animals. Let me wrap up with this. How do people go to hell? What takes people to hell? There is a sin that takes people to hell. That sin is called unbelief. Because now, God has made it so. Before I go there, let me explain something to you. Media team, can I come down? When you read Hebrews 11, 
There are some stories that don't make sense. One of my favorites not making sense stories is Rahab, the harlot. First name Rahab, middle name the, last name harlot. <laughs> By faith, Rahab accepted the spies that they should not suffer any death or punishment, paraphrasing. It wasn't really by faith. I hope you know. It wasn't really by faith. She didn't have faith that God is mighty. Don't worry. As God liveth, surely you're my brothers. You will not. No. It was good business. She lived in the city walls. That's how wide the city walls were. She lived in the city walls. She had heard these stories, according to her, of how the God of the Jews had leveled all these other cities. And now there are two spies in my room. That means our city is next. As a sharp woman, say, okay, I will keep you safe. But you will promise me one thing. When you are coming back, remember me. Don't destroy our family. Don't destroy my house. You can destroy my house, but don't destroy my life, Sha, and my family. And so when the Jews came back, Rehab gathered her family in her house. Why are we here? Don't worry, you'll soon see. <laughs> And then the Jews came, they are marching around, and the family is watching her, and she's looking at them, and she's wondering what's going on. And at some point, she must have thought these people are mad. I thought they were warriors. Why are they singing and dancing? It's praise and worship. They want to use to conquer Jericho. And then the war fell down, where she was living in. Suddenly, there was earthquakes. Ah, it's happening. Oh yeah, let's go outside. Let's run outside. Now, Rahab has finished all of this, played a very good game, and then the Lord records it as faith. You see, because whether she knew it or not, she deferred to him. There was a deference to the almighty creator that God saw and decided this is faith. <laughs> faith in who? In Jesus Christ. Rahab did not, you know it's worse because other Jews, they may have had that, maybe when Moses was speaking in Deuteronomy 8, Moses said another prophet will rise like me. They said, ah, okay, there's a Messiah we're waiting for. Rahab has never heard of it before. Do you understand? Yet, the Bible records her actions as faith in Christ. So we see something important. The summary of God's law from the Old Testament to the New is faith. That whole thing I've been saying, um, searching for the Almighty Creator and deferring to Him, God interprets it as faith. What was Eve's primary sin? In choosing to obey the devil above God, she put her faith in the devil and not God. Are you getting this? Aha. Uh -huh. So, what sin takes people to hell? Lack of faith. <laughs> and not just hell. Anyone God has ever punished out of wrath, like God was angry and he declared his wrath was for this reason. When you read Hebrews 4, I really wanted us to do Hebrews 4 today, but time is fast spent. If we start, we won't go far. If you read Hebrews chapter 4, you see the writer of Hebrews talk about how the word of God that was preached unto the Jews in the wilderness 
did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith. Therefore, God swore in his wrath, you will not enter my rest. Now, the writer of Hebrews then says, but David later spoke that today if we hear the voice of God, harden not your hearts. That means that there is a rest that remains to be entered. So the writer of Hebrews was entreating the people he was writing to that today if you hear the word of God, harden not your heart as of those in the day of provocation that God will not enter. The rest that remains to be entered is Jesus Christ. Jesus has brought us the true rest. Now that you have heard about Jesus, let there be faith in him. Do you get it? So why did God, you know, there's this whole story of how the Jews that left Egypt were not the Jews that entered the promised land. Ever heard of that before? They died out in the wilderness. And then it was a new set. Why was it so that the people that left Egypt did not enter the promised land? Two reasons. Number one, shortly after they left Egypt and Moses was leading them, they said it, we were better off getting this. There was a lack of faith in the God that was leading them. Then Moses left them for two seconds to go and talk to God. And then by the time he came down, they had already set up an image and they were worshipping the thing. And God said, no, you will not enter my rest. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why did God destroy the world with a flood? Lack of faith. For a space of 120 years, 110 years, Noah is entreating an entire generation turn to God and they refused. They chose their inordinate affections above God. Listen, I was having a conversation with the media boys yesterday while we were setting up. And we're talking about how there are some people who argue like God cannot kill, God does not kill. And I'm like, you've missed it. First of all, your perception that death is primarily a bad thing is wrong. But then secondly, when you read Noah's story, you miss the point. Yes, God acted out of justice and poured out his wrath on the world in wiping the world with water. But when you read Peter's accounts, Peter accounts how that the eight people, that's Noah, his sons, and their wives, were saved by the flood. So there's something else that you will discover. Since faith is God's law, God will many times go out of his way to preserve those who align to that law. Do you understand what I'm saying? What takes people to hell? Unbelief. Amen. Amen. What takes people to hell? No one, not even Cain, no one in the New Te- in the Old Testament went to hell because he transgressed Moses' law. No one. In fact, Moses himself transgressed many of his laws. After giving the law, Moses said he cannot marry two people. He married two. Zipporah and Keturah. I think Keturah was the second wife. I think that was her name. I'm not very sure. But I know the second wife was an Ethiopian woman, which is another transgression of his law because he said you should not marry a foreign woman. 
am I saying that we can go about transgressing Moses' law? No. Remember, Moses' law was a subset of God's general law. It means that if we, if we obey Moses' law, we play out perfectly the general law. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me put it like this. Where God's general law is the end product, Moses' law is the recipe on how to get there. Do you get what I'm saying? So which means sometimes you may miss certain parts of that recipe. Provided you are still heading towards the general product. Are you getting me? So John chapter 3 verse 16. Let's, let's, let's end it here. We'll read 16 to 18. Did you learn something this morning? Are you sure? Alright, John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever what? Whosoever what? The problem of man, the fall of man came by unbelief. Do you get it? Disobedience. Disobedience is a sign of unbelief. And I'm not, I'm not making these things up. They are principles or thought patterns that we are all, all together very used to. Amen? If you tell someone, follow me, I'm going to take you to a place where, or let's say you're not feeling fine, or the person is not feeling fine, and you say, follow me, I'm going to take you to a place where you will be made fine. Do you believe? The person says yes. Follow me. The person's obedience in following you is proof that they believe. Believe Is that correct? Does that make sense? Now, if midway through the journey, they stop and they go another place. They say, I'm not going again. You have every right to question if they ever believed you. Is that correct? That's exactly what is happening here. Disobedience to God is many times indicative of a lack of faith in God. When you make a lifestyle of disobedience, you have made a lifestyle of unbelief. Are you getting it? If it was, maybe you faltered here and there, then we can say your belief system is intact. Amen? But you are making mistakes. If in following me to the place where they will make the person well, once in a while, I say turn left and the person turns right. Because the person is like me and you can't tell. Raise your hand if you still have to do like this to identify your right hand and do left. Yeah, me too. So many times we are driving, my wife is in the car, and then she goes, turn left and I have to do left. Okay. <laughs> right. So sometimes the person mixes it up and goes left instead of right. So you can say, oh, he made a mistake. Is that correct? Ah. But if... Turn left, the person goes right and keeps going. And you're like, bro, left is this way. And the person just keeps walking that way. You can't say he made a mistake anymore. Are you getting what I'm saying? If we occasionally make a mistake and stumble on Moses' laws, it was a mistake. Amen. But when you make a lifestyle of the sinfulness, now we call to question your faith. 
Do you understand? That's the doctrine of sin. God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes, the only requirement from old into new. It's not like God changed his mind that before there were many requirements and now the requirement just reduced. No, it has always been the only requirement. Whosoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his world, son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Verse 18, Whosoever believes is saved, but he that believeth not on him is not, is, he that believeth on him rather is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Notice that, and, and, let me end it here. Notice that, he said, he that believeth not is condemned already. The judgment seat of God is not where people will be assigned to heaven or hell. Do you hear what I'm saying? The general image that you have is that on the last day, God is going to sit on a great white throne. And then we'll all line up before him. And like in Harry Potter, they will bring out the selection hat. They put it on your head and you say heaven. Remove that, put it on this one's head. Hell. No. The selection process happens on the earth. It happens here. Let me say it in another way. We can tell when a person, where a person is going to when they die. <laughs> Do you hear me? So that whole thing that people say, let's just pray for grace on his behalf. It's too late. Amen. In fact, that's the reason why Jesus was, was hanging on the cross and there was one person by his right, one person by his left, and that one was saying, remember me, your kingdom. And Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, today, to, as, as you die like this now, we are going together. Is that correct? Uh -huh. So, we can tell, because it says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. Amen. Yeah. Say, I'm not condemned. Uh -huh. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned when already. What condemned you on belief? Amen. Amen. Listen, God has always known that man had the propensity for wickedness. Uh, it's God that said the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? If God is asking who can know it, who can actually know it? <laughs> right? So God has always known that man has always had the propensity for disobedience and wickedness. After the fall, it became man's um, immediate nature. So if God is making statements like this, and I, you know why I like John 3.16? I like to quote John 3.16 a lot. You see, because when I quote Paul, people say that's Paul. This was Jesus talking directly. If your Bible has words of Christ in red, this verse is in red. <laughs> Jesus said, whoever believes is not condemned. But whoever believes not is condemned already. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why would a good God make such a place as hellfire? Because of justice. You can't judge someone good until you've seen their reaction to bad. Does it make sense? In fact, you all do it in your relationships. 
Hmm? There was a there was a couple I counseled, was it last week or two weeks ago? And the 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 lady was always complaining to the guy that you don't get angry at me. No, but she has a point. She has a point. I'm a human being. I don't believe I'm a saint. So I do things that annoy you. And you've never expressed your annoyance at me. You've never said, oh, I'm angry with you. you no, you just swallow it. I'm afraid of you. Because <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking towards me. You don't trust that they, you don't trust the goodness of the person because you've not seen their reaction to bad. Amen? Amen. You can't truly trust that a God who isn't just is good. Do you hear what I'm saying? Let me say it in another way. If you pay a man to protect your life, you will always have the fear that if somebody offers them more money, they can turn against you. Does that make sense? If God is not just, regardless of the situation, then one day the injustice will be towards you. Does it make sense? So, we can say God is good because he rewards good and punishes evil. If hell doesn't exist, he's not a good God. Have I made sense? If, if a place of punishment doesn't exist, he's not a good God. We can only call him good because we've seen that he rewards. In fact, he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Hi. Listen, this law has existed through scripture. Without faith, it's impossible to believe God. They that come unto him must believe that he is. First of all, they acknowledge his existence as the almighty creator and he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So we, we, we trust his goodness because we see his anger against evil. <laughs> if, you had a, if you had a class captain that every now and again, they were writing a noisemaker and there's one lady in class that was making noise. Maybe it's a guy. One lady in class that was making noise the entire time but her name did not appear in the list of noisemakers. For you, you were quiet as a bird or a doorknob or a grave. The entire time, you just turned and asked the kitchen that, please, do you have two biros? <laughs> they put your name. Then you asked her, please, do you have black, not blue, times two? <laughs> You'd be upset because you would say, he's unjust. Do you hear what I'm saying? So we trust God's goodness <laughs> because we see his justice. Who do, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Now, why did I take this teaching? Because whoever believes is not condemned. You are not condemned. <laughs> do you understand? <laughs> do you see how from many angles it's impossible for you to be You already believe. Are you following what I'm saying? You already believe. You already believe and obey God's law. <laughs> In believing, you obey God's law. Now, you now want to, like Paul would say, having done all to stand, 
Do you understand? You would you want to make sure that your position is properly expressed by following, you know, the dictates of scripture. Do not kill, do not lie, do not steal, do not. Do you get what I'm saying? It'd be wrong for you to think that because I made a mistake now, it has negated every thing. So I no longer believe because I've made a mistake. I'm going to hell now. Do you hear me? So if you understand the doctrine of sin, you will appreciate righteousness a little more. Amen. Because we were sometime... There's this scripture. Um... The carnal mind is enmity against God because it cannot obey. It does not know God's laws. What's that? Is it Romans 8? Romans 8, 5, I think. Put it up on the screen, please. Okay. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Verse 6. Because the carnal mind, okay, verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to, what's the next phrase? So there's a law, right? It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Do you know why? It is a mind that is given to the desires of the flesh. Inordinate affection. So until that mind begins to truly seek the creator, and acknowledge, it can't be subject to the law of God. Why can't it be subject to the law of God? Because to be subject to the law of God means to perform a complete U-turn away from the carnal mindset. Am I making sense to you guys? Praise the Lord. Say, I'm never going to hell. Say, because I believe. Say, because I believe. Say, because I believe. Hallelujah. Spend one minute and thank God for the gift of faith. Thank God because my heart has received the gift of faith. Just one minute. Spend one minute and say those words to God. In Jesus' name we have prayed. I would advise that you go back and listen to the sermon again, okay? Listen to it at least two times or three times so that your mind understands what you've heard this morning. I, have, I did my best to be as simple as possible, but yet explore as much of the truth as I'm allowed to. Amen? Amen. Were you blessed this morning? Yes, Did you learn something this morning? Yes, All right. Praise the Lord. Please package your offerings. Let's wrap this service up. Thank you for listening. For more, head over to circlechurchglobal.org or visit any of the church campus addresses on the website. God bless you.